Yo, 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 check this out. This is Fresh Kid out of China, man. Look at you like boo. Yo, yo, what's up, y'all? It's me, DMC. What's up, y'all? This is the boy, Master B. Yo, check us out. Chuck D, Public Enemy. Yo, what's up? This is DJ Yellow from the world's most dangerous group. What's up? This is DLC. This your boy, C. This is Jerry Heller, motherfucker. This your boy, DJ Paul K. Oil 365. Young Dizzy Ball. Vice One. Yo, this is DJ Reddy Brand. What up, what up, what up? This is the real Rick Ross. You can listen to me on the Murder Master Music Show. Broadcast up and put the real interviews with legendary artists. Still got love for the underground feel. Rappers with records were better than each other. Rappers are coming up. Get up put on. We need to do the platform to fight the mainstream. The show that you need to be on. Hit up UGS for life on the screen and follow up with it.com for all of your needs. Production and mixing and master and graphics. Check out the archives and hundreds of shows. But he kind of you to do everything free to download the stream. Oh, yeah, we're going to turn the real shit. We got the boy, we beat, we fought our bitch, we represent. Hold them chillers on the mic and we should love to all your fans. And, and with, with racism and, the, and fighting 
the infighting between different races and you know I, I you know I try to get out on the front lines and I go march and and I try to get in front of people and get in the community and talk about what what people want and it's just the the same thing everyone else wants you know you want to take care of your family you want to generate enough enough revenue or income for you to to buy a house and maybe send your kids to college maybe educate yourself and and also from the police brutality thing is the biggest problem is the good cops aren't doing enough of telling on the bad cops and when we get to the point where the good cops are telling on the bad cops and everyone's getting held accountable this stuff could could go away because nowadays depending on what city you are you have those body cameras, and if you turn off the body camera, a lot of times it's automatic suspension, and if you're known for doing it multiple times, then you're terminated. So when we get serious about that piece of it, that's when I think things will start to get better. So people are still marching. People are, you know, unfortunately, there are, there are some still riots and some looting, but the key is uh, we as human beings are, are now being heard and now it's time to take it to the next level is what do we do next in putting process and policy together. Now, I know uh, that, you know, President Barack Obama had some things around policy and, and the way police uh, process of policing was going to change. And then, you know, when the new president, you know, when Donald Trump came in, he changed that. And that's uh, something that some of the police departments still move forward with that higher level of, of monitoring folks and policing them. But some police stations who, who, who were saying, hey, we don't have to abide by this, this law because now President Trump has rolled it back, they have just decided, like, hey, we're just going to do status quo and work as, as what we've always done. So what, what my hope is that we, some of this thing gets cleaned up. We're going to be able to help people. We're going to provide people with opportunity for economic growth. And then at the same time, making sure that we are monitoring the police so we don't run into those type of things. Uh, that have happened, you know, so it's unfortunate. Oh, very, very unfortunate, and I'm very sorry that you uh, lost family and loved ones to COVID-19. Um, I appreciate you know, that. It's, 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 it's so difficult because you got um, a huge chunk of this population that thinks it's a hoax. They echo yeah. uh, the rhetoric of the, I like to call them the orange orifice in office, because uh, that's what he is. He's a he's a fucking orange asshole, and uh, now he wants to sacrifice our kids. First, they wanted to sacrifice the elderly. Remember, they wanted that big push yeah. to open the economy at the expense of the elderly. Oh, don't worry, uh, they'll do it for their grandkids. They'll be willing to do it. Now, they want to send our kids into a dangerous, possibly deadly situation. Uh, yeah. During the middle of a global pandemic, in the epicenter of a global pandemic, um, it's insanity, brother. It really is. I agree. I agree with you 100. percent I think the the challenge is all of these folks are being released from jail because the COVID-19 is dangerous, but we're going to send our our children back into that environment. And I think what happens is. Where people are looking from the standpoint getting people back to getting children back to school so parents can get back to work, and that's going to continue to grow the economy since we've come far back. We've gone backwards, but the problem is we're going to see folks get you know young people get very sick, and if those young people get very sick, they bring that disease over to their family members and they get sick, and you're going to see a spike. 
So I think the best thing that we could do or should do, and I know it's very difficult, is try to figure out a way to make sure that we are having children doing work at school work at home, if at yeah. all possible, because sending kids back to school and that, well, we don't even have our arms around the numbers, at least if we would have dialed back those numbers and they would have been low. Hey, we're prepared to send kids back to school because the numbers are so low, but it's just not the case, you know, and it just depends on where you live, right? If you're living in California or Florida or New York, um, and now it's like it's moved on to, to, to places like Arizona or in Texas where those numbers have shot up. It's real difficult to send your children back to school. I know, you know, my children are older, so I don't have that. Uh, I don't have to work with that dilemma. I mean, my, you know, one of my children's in college, the other one's graduated and, and, and looking to go to graduate school. But it's, it's definitely a lot of online school work can be done from a collegiate perspective. But when you're talking about elementary school and middle school and high school, sending young people into that environment and and it's kind of drawing a line in the sand that either these kids go back or we're not we're going to take away your funding i mean you're setting folks up for a disaster where people can lose their lives because we're just trying to push because everyone's about the economy the economy economy and that's important but if 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 we're we're well over a hundred thousand people have lost their lives because of COVID 19 well what if that number goes up you know, three times. What if we get to the 350, 400 and push our way to a half a million? And that's what some of the experts are saying. If we, we open up the floodgates and go back to school and try to do things the way they were before, that number is going to shoot up to the half a million, uh, million mark. And then you're, start, you're not just talking about, you're talking about very young people potentially losing their lives. And that's, you know, anyone who lost their lives to COVID-19, it's unfortunate. But when you're pushing people to go out there to do it, that is definitely challenge and, and it's definitely something that we don't want as, as the American people we don't we definitely don't want that situation no no exactly and, and there will be no economy to grow if there's no people that's what they don't understand Absolutely. too um, you know I, and, I agree with you. yeah when they're not wearing the masks they don't it shows the inconsideration because I wear a mask number one if I get it I'm done for but also, in case yeah. I, I'm carrying the disease and don't know it, I don't want to spread it to somebody and find out that I caused somebody's death. You know? Yeah. It's called consideration. And uh, these, these goofs who drink the Kool-Aid, these cultists <laughs> is like what I like to call them, they, uh, yeah. they just don't get it, man. It's like they're beyond reach, and right now they're participating in their own genocide. You know, Trump made him sign waivers to go to the rally because he knew they'd get sick. He knew some could die. Um, This is Jonestown 2020. It it really is. Well, I mean, it's it's definitely people who blindly follow what the president says is is confusing to me. I think, you know, when you, you know, until someone knows, like, like I said, I've had family friends pass away from the disease. So I, I understand it and I feel it. And if you're a person who says, you know, hey, I, I don't know anybody who's passed away from it or anyone who's had it, you start to have this feeling of invincibility, right? Like you're thinking along the lines of like, hey, this thing is a hoax because I don't know anybody who's gotten it. No one around here is sick. Well, when you start to know people that have it or know people that are sick and that it may, may have passed away or maybe they're at the, 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 the realm of, 
being on a ventilator and then been close to losing their lives or they're they're at the, the cusp of, of possibly dying but they come back, then it, it opens your eyes and you start thinking about it a little bit differently. I think that the more people understand that this disease, it, it, it's crazy because you could have the disease now and have no symptoms or what they call asymptomatic, or you could be on your deathbed, or you could die. This is, you're playing Russian roulette with your life when you're talking about COVID-19. So, yeah, if you get it and good for you, you don't have anything but the sniffles and a little bit of a cough, great. But it could go all the way to giving it to somebody where they're on a ventilator or where they lose their life. That's the scary part of this disease. It just depends on how your body reacts to it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, you can't be arrogant and think, oh, this won't happen to me. Um, you know, Italy, uh, I commend them. They were like the epicenter for a while. They were hit real bad. Yeah. And now, I mean, the, the numbers are so low. Uh, that's why Europe, they won't let us come over there. The Bahamas won't let I us know. come over I was, there. I, was, <laughs> I know I was planning a big trip to head over oh, there. In fact, I'm man. supposed to be there right now. And you know, because we're, you know, it's the difficult thing, uh, difficult thing to not be there, you know, because I had a you know long vacation plan there. But nobody from Europe wants us because you know whether we like it or not, we as Americans, and I and I'm just generalizing, we're cavalier. Like we think we're you know we can live through anything and do anything, and we're Americans, and and that's probably a big part of the problem, right? So instead yeah. of, you know, in other countries arrogance. where they're like, hey, we're, we're going to follow the rule, our arrogance says, hey, we're American. You can't tell me to wear a mask. It's un-American. Well, we've gone through this. This is why I'm not overly worried about, you know, eventually we'll turn this around. My fear is that we won't turn it around quick enough. But if you think yeah. about when, years ago, and you may not be old enough to remember this when they were talking about the seatbelt. Well, it was like no one wanted to do the seatbelt law. It was un-American. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Seatbelts or not. And now everyone wears seatbelts because it's the right thing to do. And I think in this situation is it's the right thing to do. Cover, put a mask on, um, wash your hands, be very, very diligent about making sure you're keeping your distance in your space. And I think, you know, if you can't, wear gloves. Like if I go to the gas station, I put on gloves and and, or the grocery store and put on gloves and use them and then I dispose of them and, and, and please listeners dispose of them in a trash can because oftentimes I see people's gloves on the ground and on I the find floor. Them, I start yeah. putting on gloves on to put, pick those up and putting them in the trash but if, if people just did that and were very conscientious of people's space, personal space I think you would see a significant difference in our fight against it but it's the cavalier attitude of, hey, I don't have to wear a mask if I don't feel like it. I should be able to go where I want. And uh, and being so, honestly, you know, just not thinking of others and inconsiderate of others by just saying, hey, I'm not going to wear a mask. Because at the end of the day, wear a mask. Like, you know, if you, if you, can't, hard if you can't wear a mask, don't stay home. You know, that's the deal. Like, don't go to your grocery store. If you don't want to wear a mask, don't go to the grocery store or the retail store. Just stay home. Order order online. Have the, you, nowadays, you can get your food and your groceries and anything you want from, from Amazon can come to your doorstep. Just don't leave your house. And if you're going to leave your house, 
Put your mask on. That's, Respect that's the other the, people the, out the, there, yeah. Absolutely. You know, I think the people who think simple. it's a hoax have not lost anything. Yeah, yeah, 100%, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember uh, Scarface, you know, he uh, both of his kidneys are gone. He's getting dialysis every day. Uh, from, yes. You know, um, a lot of people, a lot of people have passed away, unfortunately. Uh, and again, my apologies that you've had to endure that in your family. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really sad and it's unfortunate, and that's why when anyone tells me something's not it's not real, or someone tries to tell me, "Oh, this is a hoax," I, I just say, "Look, until you've known a family friend that has passed away from this, or multiple people have passed away from this, you have no idea." And the problem is, like I said before, you can either have no symptoms. You could have the sniffles and a cough, and the next day you feel like Superman or Superwoman, or you could be really sick and in the hospital, and, and nobody wants that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, on to some happier stuff, though. Uh, I yeah. know you got a lot of things in the works. Um, this, uh, actually, tomorrow. You're going to be on, uh, which will be the 29th, you're going to be on the uh, yep. BET for the No Limit documentary, man. Could you talk about that, man? What was that experience like? Well, you know, it was just, I had been called a couple times, and I kind of, you know, missed the BET folks, and they finally caught up with me, and they said, hey, we're going to do this uh, five-part docuseries on No Limit Records. And, you know, there's a whole story about No Limit from the foundation of, you know, the, the multiple albums uh, that were put out before there was the, the even local prominence and then moving from local to regional to regional to national. And the story, you know, people want to hear the story. You know, people want to hear about, you know, our relationship, you know, my relationship with Master P, our relationship with St. Charles, how St. Charles literally taught us all you know, myself and E-40 and JT the Bigger Figure and, and, and P and all of us, the, the music industry and what does it take to put together albums and distribution and doing one sheets and making sure that you're driving your pre-orders up so you can make sure distributors pay you on time and have multiple albums in your pipeline so when the distributor is slow to pay you. So it's just really about, you know, the story, telling the story of, how do we, you know, how do we, how do we change the industry? How do we change the industry independently and drive, drive people to the retail stores to buy these albums and put together double albums and put together movies and, and do this whole promotional tour to really get people excited about the records? And then, you know, signing a distribution deal, you know, where you, you own your masters and you're driving revenue and you're not signing an artist deal like all of those things are something that's completely different. And there've always been folks that have had distribution deals, but the difference is the amount of artists that we had, the amount of albums, doing the West Coast bad boys, doing the down south hustlers, the 99 ways to die, the ghetto's trying to kill me, putting all of those albums together and in, in quick time, you know, we shot the TRU or shot the TRU, but we recorded the TRU album in two and a half weeks. So it was like we recorded it in two, two and a half weeks, and then it took us about a week to uh, master it, and then it was ready. So when you're doing these albums in two to three weeks, 
and you're constantly in the studio and you're constantly coming up with concepts of what the album cover is going to go, uh, going to look like and how we're going to go to market and what that go to market strategy is like. It's a game changer and the world wants to hear it. Like you can, you know, when you literally take a, uh, you know, you take a, you know, an artist who is the hardest working guy you'll probably ever meet, wasn't the most talented rapper, but was really driven by being successful and you work with someone like St. Charles, who's a real OG, who, who started his career as a distributor when he was 16 years old. He was going to jukeboxes and placing records in jukeboxes. And wow. learning how to run this, industry, run this record company, and, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I, I, you know, I would owe my success to St. Charles because he taught me so much about dealing with distributors and being independent and what that's like and making sure you own your masters and not giving away the farm and just making sure that if you're going to do a deal, have enough albums in your pipeline so the distributor's always, always ready to pay you. So you're not, you're not sitting around waiting for a record. Because a, a lot of record companies back then are independent labels. They'd have one or two records they, or albums they put out, and then they were having trouble getting paid from the distributor. Well, it's a little bit better situation if you have multiple albums because the distributor wants the next album because you've already pre-promoted and you may have a pre-order of fifty to 75,000 albums and they know, like, man, once they push 75,000 albums through their, through their, uh, their tunnel, they know they're going to they're gonna pop an album on Billboard and they're going to be responsible as a, as a distributor of having a Billboard charting album coming through their funnel. So those are the type of things that, you know, we did and BET wanted to tell the story. So, you know, going from there to making music and movies and then, you know, beyond is really what people want to talk about. So, you know, the, the Snoop, you know, the Snoop Dogg deal and what that looked like and then doing the multiple movies. And then at one time, you know, No Limit Records was the, the largest independent record company in the entire world. And then also seeing, you know, after that, what happened and, and you know, the, some of the challenges that happened towards the, the end of that run of No Limit Records being very popular and very successful. And then also those of us who, who you know, ran No Limit or worked at No Limit or, or an artist at No Limit, how we have kind of moved on and we had our own success with our own record labels as artists or whatever, you know, that's a really good story. And it just show, sharing the information of, you know, No Limit wasn't just one person. It was a group of people who were passionate about being successful and had a lot of ideas to take No Limit to the next level. And, and that's, a, that's a good thing because you never get to hear about the people behind the scenes. Like you mentioned about St. Charles. That guy is a legend. And he's responsible for so much so much in the music industry like yeah. you said going back to the days of jukeboxes um yeah. what was it like you know uh learning from him and and what was what would you say was the uh, the number one thing that that you really uh, picked up from st charles well you know the, the amazing thing about saint he was just a wealth of information now one thing about saint saint always is good about you know setting you up for success and making sure you're doing everything necessary for you to get your album out there. And I think the biggest thing that I learned from him is just like I said before, having multiple albums ready to go 
and marketing those albums inside the album covers. So if you picked up a, an album from from you know No Limit Records, you would see all of the other coming up and coming albums. You pick up a Me and Minor Entertainment album that had King George or Little Troy on it with Shortstop Records. You would see the other albums that were coming or movies that were coming. And that's a big thing that I learned from Sting. It's always have a good pipeline full of music and making sure that when you're putting these one sheets together, you're putting all the information possible about who's affiliated with the, the record, who do you have as a guest appearance, what sort of concerts or shows that you have, and what sort of promotion you're going to do. So, I mean, St. Charles is just a wealth of information. I mean, there is no E-40 without St. Charles. You know, St. Charles literally taught E-40 everything he knows about putting out records. He taught me, he taught Master P, he taught Sebo, like Sebo, JT, the biggest figure, all of the records that he had come out through Solar Music Group. He taught us all what does it take for us to be independent and get that, get that done and get that out there. And none of us needed, you know, it was great some of us went and signed other deals and got some money and did some things, but he always showed us that we could go independent and sell a lot of records. We just have to be willing to work hard, get out on the road, and, and meet people and get people to believe in what we're doing and how we're doing it. So I, I enjoyed my time, you know, with St. Charles. In fact, St. Charles introduced me to Master P. You know, St. Charles is the one that said, hey, I think, uh, you know, P, you and Tobin, you need to connect you guys need to get together and work on something together because I think both of you guys could do something special. And that's how I, you know, how we met each other, you know. So, uh, you know, I say I owe a lot to, to, to Saint as far as teaching me what I needed to do and what I didn't need to do and what I should stay away from in order to have success for my record. Yeah. Yeah, very, very valuable. Um, now, you were a DJ at first, were you not? Yes, yeah, so I used to mix. I uh, I used to mix the clubs up in Washington State. You know, I learned a lot about mixing from Nasty Ness Rodriguez, who was at Nasty Mix Records with, uh, who was partners with Sir Mix a lot. So I learned a yeah, lot from yeah, him. Criminal yeah. uh, uh, Nation. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I used to I learned a lot from Nasty Ness about mixing and getting parties going, and then also transitioning the radio. So I was uh, you know mixing on the radio. I had a, a partner of mine I used to do a radio show with called the, uh, the Rap Attack up in uh, Spokane, Washington. It was Spokane's only rap uh, uh, rap show, and his name was Grand Mixer GMS. So Grand Mixer GMS, you know, he was another guy I learned from about mixing and, and, and really mixing on the radio. And, and, you know, whether you mix live or whether you use a four-track or eight-track and really expand on the sound and what you're doing. So, yeah, I started off as a DJ, you know, in the clubs and then doing all, doing radio and, and Grammix or GMS and I would, would do shows and interviews and get dropped from all kinds of, you know, artists. And, and that's how I met, you know, I came, I was in the Bay Area and I met St. Charles and St. just kind of turned me on to all of these artists. So I was playing in the E-40s of the world and I was, I was playing some of the old stuff from Master P, like before Mama's Bad Boy and then into Mama's Bad Boy. And then once we connected, then that's when we start talking about the West Coast Bad Boys and the 99 Ways to Die and coming up with concepts of how we're going to, to really market and, and really do something big. So 
I will, I always tell people when they ask me, Master P had the drive like you would never, never believe. I could tell him, you know, when we were together, I could call him and say, hey, we need to go to Japan tomorrow. And he'd say, you got my passport and what time are you picking me up? That's just the kind of drive that that guy had. So, you know, putting together records and, and all of that stuff. So I will just say that, um, you know, the the enjoyment that I had of making records and whether it's producing them or whether they're mixing them as a DJ, I mean, all that stuff was coincided, worked together, and it all coincides with wanting to put a record out. So for me, I never, you know, a lot of people would say to me, you, oh, you got to go be an intern and work for, for MCA or go work for Universal. And I was like, I was always like, well, why would I want to do that when I can produce my own records or produce my own movies? And it took, it took me meeting St. Charles and then St. Charles introducing P and I together in order for us to, uh, you know, to really, you know, build a good foundation and help a record company grow. Yeah. Yeah, St. Charles, uh, he had that gift. I mean, I talked to him many times. He had that ability, like you said, to pair people up who, who knew that they could help each other. And essentially, when when before P got with you, um, I believe he was at in a minute doing his thing over there. Yeah. Uh, so but had, so I don't know had, if you know this, but, but sorry no, but, to cut you off, but he had put multiple albums out in and out or in and out uh, in a minute record. And he, you know, there wasn't any success. So it kept on, yeah. those records kept on coming out, but it wasn't the, you know, it, it never really went more than, a, you know, a couple thousand copies of that being sold. But go ahead, I'm sorry. No, but no, that's what I was going to say, basically. He was putting out records over it in a minute, you know, um, Mama's Bad Boy, uh, Get Away Clean, and uh, some the early TRU stuff, Real Untouchables. But with you and him hooked up, it was like those were the two ingredients that you needed to kind of escalate it to the next level. Um, and, and then you guys started getting real successful. When did you come on board? What what album were you uh, first with No Limit? Well, it was before the ghetto's trying to kill me because that's really when Saint connected us. And it was the whole concept of telling the story. So if you listen to any album before that, there wasn't really a story. It was just songs put together that make an album. And if you listen to the ghetto, you listen to the ghetto trying to kill me. You listen to uh, uh, 99 Ways to Die. You listen to even the West Coast Bad Boys. Even though the West Coast Bad Boys was a compilation, it tells a story. And from, from the beginning of the album to the end of the album, and once we got down with, okay, we want to tell a story, we want to let people know whether it's visually through our album covers or through the music, that's when things picked up for us. And that's when I kind of came on board. And I think what I tried to do, I had a lot of different ideas about growing the business, but I laid a foundation of how do we, how do we show ourselves in a professional manner and how do we get in front of the right people and get it from the right retail stores with the assistance of, of St. Charles to talk to the Violet Browns of the world to get them to believe in us enough. And by at the time, Violet Brown was with Warehouse Music to get them, get her 
and other buyers of Musicland and Sam Goody and those retailers and, and Tower to believe in us enough to bring in enough units to get us on the shelf. Because ultimately, we knew if we had enough albums in the, on the shelves in the retail stores, we're going to sell because we, we believed in our product and we believed in the story we were telling. And that's really what we did. That's really the, I think that was really the catalyst for us is telling the right story, having the right sound, having, you know, enough pre-orders out there so financially we were bringing in money so we weren't, you know, we weren't struggling or stressing too much, but we were still driving enough revenue, enough units out there to, to generate the revenue we needed to expand, right? Doing the West Coast Bad Boys, getting the most popular rappers on the West Coast and putting them all on one album, and then having Master P being the leader of that, you know, by saying Master P presents the West Coast Bad Boys and having all the different rappers from all over the West Coast who are hot on that is really what, what, what took us to the next level. Because back then, before... People were doing compilations, but they were kind of oldies but goodies, right? They might have been some old rap tunes that they put on together. But no one had really, other than, you know, NWA, right, when they they started the whole NWA before they formed the group, no one had really put together a compilation that that was new artists or or established artists in a bunch of really new music. And, And by having the most popular rappers in different parts of of the West Coast, and then putting Master P on there as the leader, uh, you know, that's what really, that's what really took it to the, you know, took it to the next level. When you know, if you have, if you have ten or twenty thousand fans, and I have ten or twenty thousand fans, and and JT has has fans, and Rapper Forte has fans, and then you add all of them together, next you know it, you know, you you've probably sold a quarter million records, and then you're pushing yourself, trying to push yourself to go gold independently, and you're driving a lot of dollars. You're bringing a lot of dollars in, and everybody gets what they want, and they get turned on to a new artist. So if there was someone who liked Forte, who, who wasn't really didn't know about Sibo, wow, they got a Sibo record on there, and they can they can check out Sibo. And then when you see all of these powerful artists are all kind of coming under the West Coast bad boys who Master P is presenting that to the world. That put him at the top echelon of being the hottest artist on the West Coast just by doing the West Coast bad boys. And everything yeah. we did after that was like, like, oh, my God, I need to get that ni- the 99 Ways to Die, the original cover, Master P on the cover with two guns, smoking a cigar. That just it blew people's mind because that's when they said, Okay, Master P's leading the West Coast Bad Boys. He's got this 99 Ways to Die, One Way to Live album. And then the rest was history. We got better producers. We were working with folks like Ken Franklin, a.k.a. K. Lou. We were working with Larry D. We were working with Al Eaton, who was, you know, Two Shirts producer. And that's when you start saying, wow, these guys, you know, they've taken their game to the next level. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you, I remember the explosion too. It just started to to really take off. I remember seeing a um, about about a video on BET. I was like, "Wow, man, this is this is a huge movement right here." And um, the the good thing about it too is it, it was kind of like a, a you know, West Coast Bad Boys or Down South Hustlers. It was kind of like the uh, review section of a Murder Dog magazine. Like you said, you had people, you know what I'm saying, from representing Oakland, Frisco, 
all over the place. You know, yeah. on one project, you didn't have to go nowhere else. You know. Well, that was and, the uh, hope. That was the hope we wanted. We concept, wanted to yeah. build an album that had different people from different hoods, so people felt they got their money's worth. We were always about the value pack. When we did the Down South Hustlers, we wanted to get as many well-known artists as possible to put them on one album and then have Master P be at the head of that and, you know, get that done. So, you know, you've got, you know, a different sound on each album. So if you were into certain, something particular, if you, if you were into something, some balanced booty-shaking music, you could get that. If you're looking for some real slow kind of something to mob to, you can listen to that. If you're looking for something hype, you can do that. You you were looking up for some really gangster shoot 'em up bang bang stuff. We had that, so everyone could get a little something from that album, and you were getting turned on to an artist that you may not even really paid attention to. Like you know, we had CCG on that album. We had Twenty to Life on that album. We had the Dayton Family on that album. We had Eight Ball yeah, and JG, PSK Thirteen. Uh, exactly, DJ Screw. Like, there's so many artists that were on that album. It was just, it was, it was phenomenal. And then you get, you know, Pimp C produced some tracks on there, and Bun B, and and we flew them out to California and recorded these albums. And then, you know, you, you then by that time we had we had already signed Moby Dick, we had signed KLC, we had signed Servon and Mia X. So we, we cranked out those records, and it was just, you know, it was just one of those things that people just, they were waiting on, and they got the value pack, and they got their money's worth, and, and you know, for us to be on the Billboard charts. So from, from the ghettos trying to kill me on, like, every album we did was on the Billboard charts. And when you're on the Billboard charts, retailers want what's hot on the Billboard charts. So I even would tell artists, even today when artists talk to me, and they say, well, what, how do, you know, what should we do? Or I'm like, look, your number one goal right now, I don't care what you do, is get as many download or sa- downloads or sales as it takes to get you on the Billboard chart. If you can get on the Billboard chart, top 200 or top 100 R&B or top 200 pop chart, you are going to set yourself up for success. And you need to know what that number is. Is it 10,000 downloads in a week? Is it 20,000 downloads? Or, you know, back then it was, we know we had to get the eight to ten thousand, you know, sales for a week in order to get even to get to crack the top two hundred. And the goal is if we can get the top two hundred and we can maintain that for many, you know, many weeks, then when we drop the next album, and if you look at all those albums, it, it was be like from the West Coast Bad Boys or from the Down South Lessons or from TRU album or whatever, people would automatically say, "Hey, I love the TRU album." I got to check out Mr. Servon. Or I love TRU. Let me get Silk the Shocker. Let me get Big Ed. Let me, you know, you know, and obviously Master P was at the forefront of all of these things when the Master P album was dropping was hot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Huge, huge, uh, you know what I'm saying, sales. I mean, you guys were just hitting Billboard left and right. And um, yes. everybody was selling that, that you guys dropped on that label. Um so much, so much talent. Tobin, I want to go to a break. I want to uh, play a song. Actually, uh, I asked you to pick one tonight. You picked 50 Cent. If I can't, uh, what made you want to choose this one? It's a dope song. Hey, man, I love the song. It's one of my favorites, probably top five for me. It's just because it's the message. 
if I can't do it, it can't be done. And that really should be, you know, people's mindset and anything that they do whenever they, they want to start a business, whenever they're at work and, and they're trying to maximize their bonuses, they should be thinking, if I can't do it, it can't be done. And that's, that's kind of what drives me. And I know it drives a lot of people. Definitely. Definitely. We'll be right back with Tom Costin. Don't go nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Going since the last time we spoke. 
Well, you know, Psycho Cider has always been a you know a passion of mine. Um, doing hard flavored hard, hard ciders that are smooth and not sweet. A lot of times when you have a cider, it's you know high in sugar content. So my goal was to make a cider that was low in sugar content and use kind of my experience in the music business to market it to the world. So folks have things like vodka, flavored vodkas. So what I try to do is a, a low sugar kit. A sugar content, uh, less than seven grams or, or less than three grams of sugar, but also a little bit less than seven percent alcohol, where people could, you know, enjoy, be real smooth, and and, and and something they can enjoy with different flavors that that no one else does. So we do a raspberry dragon fruit psycho cider. We do a kiwi herman, which is kiwi lime. We have an eliminati, which is a lemon drop cider. So. We're doing things that, you know, flavors that no one else is doing and just keeping that sugar content low. So I'm excited about it. So, you know, we were doing real well because we were doing on-premise only only kegs. But uh, unfortunately, with COVID-19, um, you know, restaurants and bars, especially out here on the West Coast in California, um, were closing down. So what we've done is revamped, and um, now we're in the can business. So... We should have cans ready to go, uh, you know, mainly uh, mainly in California now and then eventually expanding across the United States. But we're really focused on getting uh, our Mother of Dragons, which is the Raspberry Dragon Fruit Hard Cider, and the Kiwi Herman, which is the Kiwi Lime Hard Cider, out to uh, all of California, hopefully in the next four to six weeks, and we are ready to rock and roll. So I'm really excited about it. Uh, I I enjoy making the cider and working with a really great company called Hidden Star. Those guys are uh, really awesome. I put together what I think is a really good formula, and people, you know, everywhere it was at, it was pretty much uh, those kegs were selling out quickly. Now we're just expanding that on the cans, and uh, it's going to be exciting, man. That's awesome. Congratulations, man. Um, you know, I know you're putting in work, and Thank this you. this is, shows off your skills in another area, you know, um, same thing you did in the, in, in the rap game. I, I assume you've applied to Psycho Cider. Absolutely. So, you know, promoting each flavor separately, you know, doing more digital marketing now because we didn't have digital marketing back then, but also having events pre-COVID-19. Uh, we did a Psycho Fest in uh, the Bay Area that was really big. We were doing different parties, basically monthly, having artists perform, um, you know, and we were excited about uh, Psycho Fest 2, which was going to be big with multiple artists from, from hip-hop to 80s cover band to DJs. Uh, so everything is about events and getting people through the doors and, 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 you know, getting people excited about the gear, you know, the hats, the T-shirts and you know, the paddle boards and, you know, everything is nothing's off limits when it comes to psycho cider and trying to promote the brand and promote who we are. So, you know, it's, it's been exciting and I've been doing the same kind of strategy of creating this awareness of who we are. And, you know, I, we tell the story, we tell the story about how you can get something, you know, really light, crisp and refreshing and smooth and not too sweet and not bitter like some other ciders are. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what's up, man. That's, I wish you nothing but success with that. And hopefully once this pandemic is over, 
Uh, I know you can, you want to go out there and do some more events and, you know, um, just just get it out to the world. Um, our brother Sin from France, he's uh, he's up wee hours of the morning over there to <laughs> talk to you, Tobin. Uh, Sin, are you there, brother? What's up, yes, Sin? Yes, How you doing, man? How's it going? <laughs> Oh yes, it will be good. You come in France, yeah. What time? Hi, hi, Alexander. We coming. Sound like you're. You sound like you're in a birdhouse back there. <laughs> it's like it. Yeah, exactly. I'm outside of home, so <laughs> there's some birds here. <laughs> birds in the kitchen, like Tibo. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. The <laughs> yeah. Um can you tell us about the the members of the real entertainment, the earlier members like uh, Big Air of course, but you got also Gangster T and uh Gary G, the earlier members back the day. Yeah. You know, when you think about you know, when you think about those guys, you know you know, this is post Post V and, and, and obviously King George, you know, really the focus was all, getting all those guys together, and they were they were a group. You know, everybody was like a family, and releasing those records were was popular. You know, and the, the goal was to you know Cali G to have an album, Big Ed to have an album, Gangsta T to have an album, uh, you know, and then you know King George to have an album. And, you know, it didn't come to fruition. Big Ed did have a solo album and had some success before he left No Limit and unfortunately he passed away. And then, you know, King George and I had a lot of success with the King George albums. Every album that we did with King George was on the Billboard charts uh, that came from, from me and Minor Entertainment. So there was that success. And, and Cali G has worked on projects and featured on projects and had that album. So, you know, there's been that success of a great foundation of, 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 of people who started out with No Limit Records in some capacity and went on and had their own individual success. You know, Trey 8 was somebody who, who you know, was on the Dow South Hustlers and also had his own solo album, um, you know, through, through his record label, Smoke One, as well as, you know, No Limit Records, and he had success on his own, you know, up until the to the time of his passing, he, you know, he's always had hot albums that were really successful, you know. So when you when you think about all of the talent that kind of brought together to make No Limit Records, and each one of those guys was passionate about their skill set and what they could do and what they brought to the table, it, there was some excitement around that. And I think that was, you know, it's unfortunate that some of those albums didn't come out on No Limit, but I think you know, the albums that didn't were successful because, you know, those guys stood on their own two feet and they kind of drove people to the to the retail stores to check them out and they drove people to, to, to shows to, to come see them do shows. Like, you know, someone yeah. like, you know, King George that would do a show in front of, you know, 5,000 people, you know, that would, would, would pay, you know, $20, $30 to come see him before. So... There is some excitement around that, and we did projects with, uh, you know, the, you know, we did projects with Cali G, including the Plays and Hustles One and Two, and you know, War Casualties, the King George album, and Constant Jungle, and albums like that that had a lot of success. You know, Cali G 
Cali D was a part of. And, and, and you know, King and Cali still, you know, work together and, and do projects together to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Tim, uh, you got you got another one, brother? Yes, sir. Um, can I tell us uh, about the album Get Away Clean from Master P and how it was to work on it? Well, I mean, ultimately, you know, Getaway Clean was a solid record, but I think it was, you know, if, if you listen to it, it was kind of very raw. You know, it didn't, it wasn't as polished. So, and I think a lot of that had to do with, you know, Master P was trying to figure out what his sound was going to be. And he was always kind of trying to figure out what he wanted to be and how he wanted to be and what that sound was and what his moniker was going to be. And I think, you know, with the different production and trying to have a different sound for each each record to go on this album, I think it was I think it was kind of visionary, but at the same time didn't show, you know, exactly the direction that, that you know, that was gonna take place. So I think as you move move from there to to, you know, as you start getting into the ghettos trying to kill me and you start getting into 99 ways to die, you're starting to hear a kind of its own sound, a variety of producers putting it, putting the records together um, because you don't want to have one sound on an album. So a lot of times when you have multiple producers, you, you have a more national sounding record instead of a local sounding record. So Getaway Clean was, you know, a solid record, but it was more of a local a local record and until 99 ways to die that's when you you became regional and then uh, um, then when when you focus on you know the ghettos trying to kill me that was the regional but then by the time 99 ways and true and all those albums start coming out then you've got a national sound with a national audience and you're building that foundation for success which will grow from there yeah yeah yeah, we we had uh, thanks to you, we had King George on the show. Um, it was dope to actually uh, chop it up with him, because uh, you never really get to hear from him anymore. Um, have you done any any projects with him recently, or plan on doing anything with him? No, I mean we haven't. You know, I haven't done an album. The last album I did with King was uh, that hit Billboard charts was the hardest hits 2000 album back in 2000. And I didn't, you know, I haven't done anything with them since then. Um, I know he's working on, you know, he, you know, we've talked a few times and he's working on putting together a movie and he's working on doing some other projects, but you know, nothing's in the works. You never want to say never because, you know, when Penn hates paper to agreements for people and money changes hands, you never know. But, you know, we, we haven't really talked specifically about doing you know anything with King, with the uh, King George and TC getting together to do a project? Now I know right now he's doing some stuff with uh, some jazz stuff with his his late great uh, uncle Henry Butler, the jazz musician. I know he's doing some projects around there, and I know we've talked about doing some stuff with that. But as far as a hip hop record, we haven't. But we did talk a little bit about you know the movie and possibly doing some distribution and stuff like that. But no, we we haven't talked specifically about doing another King George album yet. Now, now with this you know BET uh, series coming out, um, were you able to you know talk to Master P? And if so, did you guys talk about possibly doing anything in the future? Or 
No, I, you know, I did not connect with T at all. Um, they did everything separate. Like, you know, Saint was interviewed and Snoop was interviewed and King was interviewed and Callie G and myself and so many people, Mia and, 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 and all those folks, Servon and, 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 you know, were all interviewed, but we were never together at the same time. So when they put this together, it kind of, you know, it's a good flow to it from the, the little bit that I've had the, the, to, to see. I got the opportunity to see because I haven't seen the whole part and I haven't even seen really, you know, the, the, the way it flows. But I've seen a little bit of the, the way they have it together. And it looks, you know, it coincides all together. Everyone works together. But we were not all in the same, the same space. Now, I did see K. Lou and I did see uh, St. Charles and talk to him. But those are the only folks that I really, really saw. So at this particular juncture, I would say no, but I will go back to what I said before. Yeah. You never say never. You never know what, what the future entails. I think this No Limit Chronicles is going to, you know, bring a lot of things to the forefront. Some of it good. Some of it probably not so good. Some of it uh, uh, paints us, you know, the no overall No Limit in a good light, and some of it probably doesn't. And I think, I think it's good to tell the story. Uh, and, and as long as we tell the story, there's going to be avenues such as your show and other shows for people to have conversations around what happened at No Limit. And maybe there are things I try to, you know, every time I've come, been on your show or every time we've had a, a conversation, I feel like, oh, I remember, I, oh, I forgot to tell this story or, or you bring out some information or you ask me a question that, me, that gets me to talk about things that maybe I, I haven't thought about in a lot of years. And I think that's what's going to be exciting for people who don't know the story. Because there's certain people that think they do know, but they have no idea of, the, of everything that took place and how we fought and struggled to get records mastered and to get the vinyl done and to get on the road and be in some of the most difficult situations in the country and being in some of the hardest places to be in and some of the hoods and and all of the things that it takes to, to build the foundation of doing an album, people are going to feel it and sense it. And I think it's important. And I think folks like Callie G and King George and St. Charles and, and, you know, and as you, as you talk to K. Lou and as you talk to these people who were all part of the success, it's good that everyone's going to be able to get an opportunity to, to tell their side of the story and you never know how much of their side of the story is going to, to make it on screen because sometimes there's just not enough time. I mean, it's great that there's five-part series to this, but, you know, you probably could do a 20-part series of this thing and still not hit all the information and talk about all of the people that were behind the scenes. Because I know Sonya C is in, is, is in the docuseries as well, and Mia X, Ricky Williams is, is on the show, and Snoop's on the show. So there's so many people from different angles that are going to kind of tell their part of the no little story and how they became a part of, uh, you know, what I would say changing history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We saw this with Ruthless too, you know, uh, when Straight Outta Compton came out, and um, you know, this generation discovered Eazy E and and uh, Cube yeah. and Dre and everything, and it just exploded from there. And it's, I, I hope it happens here as well. I'm sure it will. 
And then I also want to see it happen with Rap-A-Lot and Luke Records, too. Those are the other uh, independent labels that really um, had incredible stories. Um, yeah. You know, guys who came from nothing. Luke was pressing records out of the back of his mother's house, and we all know Jay Prince's story. And you know, So uh, it's, it's going to be good to see these stories told. Um, I think Sin has one more for you uh, before, okay. uh, before we... Uh, Go, but I, I want to give you the floor after uh, he uh, comes on. Sin, you there, brother? Yes, sir. So, um, yes, can you tell us about the the group's uh, Fambam uh, producer's album, Wait Will, and also Wet Boys, uh, you got Spotty T, Rest in Peace in it, and uh, Black Goody and T-Bone, uh, the album, Get Wet, you produce it too. Tell us about, tell us about these two groups. Well, yeah, so, you know, Bam Bam Click was, you know, these guys were, you know, Crips. They were from South Central Los Angeles. Part of them, some of them lived in Compton, some of them lived in South Central. And um, I don't know if you remember the magazine, 4080 Magazine. Um, Mongo Nicole was a writer for those guys, and he did all kinds of, of things. He actually introduced me to those guys. So... I went down to Los Angeles to go meet them in their pad, and they just played me a ton of music. I mean, man, I was blown away by, you know, all of the music and all the talent that they had. Now, these guys were, you know, they're street guys, but, man, the talent was amazing. So what I did was, I don't know if you remember Cadillac Todd. Um, you know, Cadillac Todd has some, some success in the 90s and early 2000s himself. So Cadillac yeah. Todd, I kind of connected them with Cadillac Todd, and Cadillac Todd started kind of managing the process of putting together their their their, their album and their single. So we put together the Way Too Real record. Um, there was another record on there called Gangsta Waves, and we kind of promoted those two. And we got radio play, and Bam Bam Click started to take off. Now, right when we were starting to do their album, they had some challenges and some things kind of came up. And unfortunately, folks, you know, got locked up and, and we didn't get a chance to bring to, to the world the entire fan band click. And since then, that folks, you know, some folks are still incarcerated and, and, and a couple of guys have passed away. So we never got a chance to really put that album out. So that was a challenge. So, but I love those guys. They're so talented. Their music was great, and some of the best records that, that me and my entertainment ever put out. And I was ever involved with as a as a producer, an executive producer was the Bam Bam Click, and and Cadillac Todd was great at helping put those projects together, put those records together. Now, when we talk about the Wet Boys, Sporty T, I met Sporty T in in New Orleans, and. He wanted to, to put together this project, The Wet Boys. And, you know, the thing about the record, the record was so hot. Um, and it, but, you know, at the end of the day, it was, a, it was a full disc record of Cash Money. He felt he was slighted. Sporty T felt he was slighted by Cash Money. And he was going to prove to them that they made a mistake. So, you know, with Soldier Rag, he basically redid Soldier Rag. And he just, you know, he was always talking about, you can say hot boys, but we the wet boys, wet boys put out the fire. So the whole album was banging. I mean, it was incredible. So people don't realize this, 
one of the last albums that DJ Screwed screwed before he passed away was the Wet Boys album. And the name of that was called the Wet Boys Get Wet Get Screwed. So we dropped that album screw version because we were one of, you know, when I say we, me and my entertainment, we were one of the very first labels, if not the first labels that was putting out the regular version of an album and the, and, and then doing the chop version at the same time and have them sell, selling simultaneously. So we would, we would chop these records, put them out at the same time, and we would have some really good success around the original version and the chop version selling at the same time, and it was hot. So, you know, rest in peace, like you said, to Sporty T. And it saddens me that he lost his life, especially the way he was, he was murdered. But, man, that's, that Get Wet album and that Get Wet, Get Screw album, was so both of those were so visionary and so hot. And he wound up doing so direct song for Master P. Um, you know, he, he, Master P had a compilation, and he took that record and, and he gave Sporty money to, to do a video and shoot it and do a single to that record. And it was, you know, it was a huge success for Sporty and helped drive even more sales to the Wet Boys album. And the, the, the Screwed version that was, one, like I said, one of the last Screwed albums done by uh, DJ Screwed before he passed away. Man, that's legendary. Um, man, Tobin, thank you so much for chopping it up with us again, man. We really appreciate it. Um, before we do get out of here, though, I want to give you the floor. You know, anything you want to, you know, promote or anybody want to shout out or social media, whatever, it's all yours, brother. Yeah, absolutely. A couple things. We already talked about Psycho Cider. Um, you can always follow us at Psycho Beverages, and Psycho's uh, is spelled X-A-I-K-O. The website is Sip Psycho. That's S-I-P-X-A-I-K-O.com. I also started a new network with a partner of mine named Hammer, it's called the Coffin and Hammer Network. We're doing all kinds of things from um, from podcasts to, to, to video shows to music shows to actual TV content type shows. So we're dropping content on the Coffin and Hammer Network, which is on YouTube, as well as you can follow us on Coffin and Hammer Pro, C-O-S-T-E-N, and Hammer Pro uh, on uh, Instagram. And then you can always hit me on my uh, website at Tobin, T-O-B-I-N-C-O-S-T-E-N.com and send me a message. Uh, last but not least, um, so I wanted to announce coming in a few days on August 1st, we are uh, releasing the Reverend Do Wrong Ain't Right on the Coston and Hammer Network. It will be free for 24 hours. So from August oh, wow. 1st, Saturday, until Sunday, uh, from the beginning of, the, of Saturday all the way up till uh, um, the next morning of August 2nd, the movie The Reverend Do Wrong Ain't Right will be on the Coffin and Hammer Network. It's an opportunity for folks who didn't get a chance to watch it on Amazon Prime. It still will be on Amazon Prime to be rented and purchased, but to watch it for free on August 1st, this Saturday, you'll have the opportunity to check out The Reverend Do Wrong Ain't Right. It's going to be free for 24 hours. Watch it as much as you would like, but it's only going to be up for 24 hours. That's what's up. Tobin, you and yours take care. And again, my condolences on uh, 
your family that uh, suffered loss, you know, during this COVID. Um, you Thank know, you. Keep your head up, brother. I appreciate you, Prez. I appreciate you, Sin. I love your show. You know, well over 700, 700 episodes, man. I'm proud of you guys for bringing on all kinds of artists from all kinds of background. And I just want to tell you, I love you guys. I appreciate you. And thank you so much for giving me an opportunity. Make sure everybody goes out and BET, 9 o'clock, 8 o'clock Central. Make sure you check out the No Limit Chronicles. It is uh, on BET. It's going to be fabulous. You're going to see a lot of cool things on there five-part docu-series check it out and don't forget august 1st baby saturday make sure you check out the reverend you wrong ain't right on the coffin and hammer network chn thanks guys appreciate you and i'll talk to you guys soon take care Tevin. yeah and i'm here to see king george is y'all gonna let that fool out of jail just for that i'm gonna give that nigga 20 to life burn nigga burn in the courthouse stuck in jail time moving slow like a snail handcuffed to the rail, dealt a bad deal, quiet in the court when the judge said bail, caught up in the system, can't get loose, loud words still suit, black face boots, 25, what the hell, that's what I get, no I don't smoke, but I can go both cigarettes, another black man in a cell doing time, my name's on my chest, number 6639, if I gotta die, King George ain't scared, with a bald head, I'll be better off there, three strikes and they trying to give a nigga life, Going to traffic court. Oh, nah, man, 